Hello and welcome to NER Out Loud, a podcast series from the New England Review. I'm Becca Clark, and today I'm excited to present an essay titled The Elvis Room by Katie Moulton. In this episode, Katie will read the beginning of her essay, followed by an interview that covers her career, writing about death and loss, and of course, the king of rock and roll. Katie is a writer, editor, and music critic, originally from St. Louis, Missouri. Her essays, stories, and memoirs have appeared in The Rumpus, Oxford American, The Believer, Denver Post, and elsewhere. She was a 2021 McDowell Fellow and has been supported by many fellowships and awards, including Breadloaf, Hub City Writers Project, Oklahoma Center for the Humanities, and Indiana University, where she earned her MFA and was the editor of the Indiana Review. She now lives in Baltimore and teaches at Johns Hopkins University. She released an audio memoir entitled Dead Dad Club on Grief and Tom Petty on Audible earlier this year. The Elvis Room Mama is digging through a cabinet looking for a spare picture frame when she pulls out a cassette tape in its see-through case. She hands it to me. I thought this was lost forever, I say, turning it over. You can have it, she says and smiles, then goes on rummaging. The cassette tape is beige, affixed with a generic label that looks like it's been soaked in tea. Two lines at the top. Next to title, it says, my way. Next to artist, someone misspelled my last name before correcting it with Sharpie. The tape coiled inside is mostly bright yellow, which means the recording is short. There's a lot of space left on the tape. On a road trip in 1978, my parents stopped in Memphis on a 100-degree dead summer day to pay their respects at Graceland. They were 22 and 23, already married a couple years. Elvis Presley's humble mansion wasn't yet open to the public, but there were souvenir shops set up across the street. The strip mall is still there today, billed as the official Graceland outlet, much of its parking lot reserved for employees of the new Presley Exhibition Center slash entertainment complex. But in 1978, my parents pulled over on suburban Elvis Presley Boulevard and browsed the shoddy postcards and teddy bears, then walked into a storefront called Graceland Recording Studio. My dad stepped into the booth, which was just a small closet lined with cast-off carpet and insulation. Inside, his head of long wavy brown hair bumping against the ceiling, he put on headphones, aimed his voice at a microphone, and made his own Elvis record. In our house, Elvis Presley always got a bigger room than I did. To be fair, my parents had him first. We were the only house on the block with a boombox propped on an empty kitchen chair, little sister, don't you, jumping against the clink of rinsed dishes. A hushed Saturday, made suddenly dramatic by the hit-your-knees, searchin' for you, of Kentucky rain. A tongue-in-cheek, uh, thank you, thank you very much, whenever someone passed the salt. But in our house, Elvis wasn't just in the air. No, Elvis had an actual room. The king of rock and roll is the many-headed icon of a shrine that still fills a large room in the lower level of Mama's house. The walls are a kaleidoscope of Presley's face. Calendars, clocks, spoons, Elvis in leather, Elvis in rhinestones, Elvis on wood, long-lashed velvet Elvises on canvases of every size and crudeness. A glass display case is stocked with porcelain statuettes, karate chop action figures, Elvis is alive VHS tapes, and a cardboard model of Graceland. 
For decades, these objects have never moved. Nothing even gets dusted. At the center of the Elvis room is the bust. It doesn't really look like Elvis. The vibe is much more Mary Magdalene in drag. His face is textured like chalk and painted in pastels, and there's a sheen to the black mat of his hair. His parted pink lips curl softly upward. He measures two feet tall and two feet across at his widest point, where the shoulders of his white plaster jumpsuit jut off in opposite directions. His eyes, a little askew, are as blue as his silk scarf and tilted towards heaven. Blocking his view like a styrene halo is a powder blue lampshade with a trim of burnished gold. The lamp sits at eye level, atop a sound system that was state-of-the-art in the 90s, rising from shelves cluttered with CDs. Gold and platinum records checkerboard the walls. Their sales award plaques, certified by the Recording Industry Association of America, bestowed on my dad back when he managed a music land, one in a long defunct chain of record stores. His store was the largest in the St. Louis metro area, and so he reported its sales to the billboard charts. In the 80s, label reps would still fly into record stores to make sure their artists were displayed prominently, persuading managers with tickets and backstage passes. Tucked in front of a Laserdisc player is a framed photo of the time my dad met Lionel Richie backstage somewhere, sometime before I was born. According to the family account, my dad made a joke, to which Lionel Richie exclaimed, Dave, you knock me out. I don't know what the joke was, but the photo, Richie's expression, is our proof that a moment passed between them. An only child learns early. A lot happened before we showed up. We get absorbed into a society of two. The intimate culture of my parents took root in summer 1975, when they were given $10 tickets to see Elvis perform in the small arena in their Indiana hometown. They were 19, too young for Elvis. He had scored his first hits the year they were born. By 75, Elvis was bloated kitsch, both beloved and reviled. 40-year-old Elvis did karate moves and vamped with a cape across the stage, and housewives caught the baby blue scarves he threw into the front row like sweaty sacraments. At the climax of a gospel medley, he looked like he might keel over or implode. America's biggest music star had long been hurtling into his black hole of self-destruction, and everybody knew it. But my dad was curious about what Elvis meant. According to Mama, seeing him live in concert cemented the fascination. He loved his voice. Their friends laughed and asked, why would you go see Elvis? When I ask, Mama says, we just thought he was beautiful. My dad died when he was 47 and I was about to turn 17. We were very close. He bought me my first records, recommended music from Hendrix to Alanis Morissette to NWA. He left Chaucer and Tom Robbins on my bedside table. We shared subscriptions to Rolling Stone and Spin, played basketball for hours in the driveway, and saw stupid movies together. Half-Baked, Austin Powers, Pootie Tang, Dude Where's My Car, turning to each other in the dark theater with tears streaming down our cheeks. He was monumental to me, 6'4", 240 pounds, salt and pepper hair, handsome in a way that made people comment, smart and sharp but gentle to his core. So gentle that even as a kid I saw how easily he could be hurt, that he needed protection. 
For longer than any of us could remember, he struggled with alcoholism and depression. By the time I was a teenager, I was angry, even as I understood how he felt, recognized his darkness in myself. I was angry because I could still clearly see the flashes of who he had been and who he could be behind his addictions. One morning, he woke up to his skin yellow and swollen, less beautiful suddenly. He asked to go to the hospital. I don't like to remember the artifacts of those last weeks, a stack of dialysis reports, the stuffed bunny mama tucked into his shirt pocket in the casket, the mostly empty bottles I found hidden in corners and closets until I graduated high school. Those things we didn't keep. The Elvis Room is a collection, sure, but shrine is the better word, meaning it's not curated but haphazard, strange memorabilia discovered in the wild, and very personal. There's the custom-made neon light, which beams Elvis in cursive glass lettering, a violet glow you can see a quarter mile down the road. There's the photo of my young parents at a Halloween party, my dad's felt in a white jumpsuit, his features obscured by a rubber Elvis mask, mama's dolled up as Raggedy Ann, her red hair caricatured with a yarn wig, real-life freckles highlighted with marker, clutching my dad at the waist and chest and grinning, even though the mask looks like it's melting his face. When playing tour guide for first-time visitors to the Elvis room, I point out one bust in particular. Made of thick white porcelain stuck to an ugly brown base and embossed Elvis, 1935-1977, it looks rough-hewn, but was mass-produced. I turn the bust around to where a brass plate reads McCormick Distilling, Weston, Missouri. I unscrew the corked knob to show where you pour out the liquor. Fans of Elvis forged him into a weird saint, his purity put into relief by the weakness or excess that killed him. In Dead Elvis, a chronicle of a cultural obsession, Grill Marcus describes this moment from a phone-in radio show, quote, I have a friend who has a shrine to Elvis in his bathroom, the caller says, flummoxed. When you flush the toilet, these lights light up. He's got quaalude bottles in front of it. The phenomenon of Elvis shrines in private homes has been around nearly as long as Elvis himself, but the practice of hoarding Presley ephemera as a form of devotion took on a decidedly more religious bent after his death in 1977. He died at age 42 of cardiac arrest likely caused by his abuse of pharmaceutical drugs. In Afterlife as After Image, Understanding Posthumous Fame, historian Erica Doss writes, quote, Associating material culture abundance with Elvis piety is not only a sign of being a true fan, but of being true to Elvis. Fans repeatedly say that by collecting and displaying Elvis memorabilia, they are taking care of Elvis, keeping his memory alive, and rescuing him from historical oblivion. Many fans took the memory keeping to the extreme, denying that Elvis died at all. I haven't heard my dad's voice since I was 16. As far as I know, this tape is the only recording of him that exists. I've heard that the first thing you forget about someone is not their smell or touch or face. There's a difference between types of sensory memories. Our brains are much better at converting visual memory, called iconic, into longer-term storage. We can scan an image and close our eyes and see it still. On demand, I conjure my dad's face, 
the particular light of an eye glinting between dark lashes and ruddy cheek, an expression that was never exactly captured in a photograph. I'd know his cologne immediately across a crowded mall. My grandmother says sometimes she still feels the pads of his fingers squeezing her shoulders when she needs it. We can't do that with auditory or echoic memory. Echoic. Echo. By definition, the sound is fading, already and always going away. Of course, we would recognize a familiar voice if it somehow returned, snuck up behind us. But after absence, and it's shorter than you'd think, it's almost impossible to call up another's voice with our own. That was the beginning of The Elvis Room, read by the author Katie Moulton. You can read the rest of this essay in the print edition of NER 43.3, which can be ordered on the New England Review website. In addition to hearing her read, I had the opportunity to speak with Katie about her work. My name is Katie Moulton. I am originally from St. Louis, Missouri, and now I live and make my home in Baltimore, Maryland. I started studying creative writing at Boston College, and then I worked as a freelance journalist um, and music critic for alternative weekly newspapers. And then I did a graduate degree in MFA at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. Hi, Katie. Thanks for joining me today. I'd like to start by asking you about what inspires your writing. You do a lot of music-related writing, obviously, so would you say that that serves as your biggest inspiration, or if not, what does? I love to write about music. I find it really challenging, but I think I keep writing about music both as a journalist and critic, but also weaving it into writing personal essay and memoir, just because that is how I experience the world through the music I love or the music that is around or the music that I'm sort of obsessing over. And when I'm writing through memory or experience, it's really difficult for me to disentangle it from the music and the pop culture that is also swimming around in my brain (laughs) at the same time. But I don't know if I would say it's my biggest inspiration. I think that changes all the time and you don't quite know when something is going to turn into uh, an experience that you write about. So let's talk about your story, The Elvis Room. I'm dying to know more about this fascination with Elvis that your parents had. You wrote that by the time your parents saw him, he was bloated kitsch. So why Elvis? Why this fascination with him? Obviously, I came later, much later than my parents developed their obsession with Elvis or their their sort of ironic fandom. And so I inherited it. It was just always a fact of our family culture, our intimate family culture, our household. And the fact that my family had an Elvis shrine in the house was just always something that friends would learn about me and uh, give me shit about (laughs) and... Uh, you know, it was like a fun tourist destination. Why my parents developed this affection for Elvis Presley, maybe beginning in irony, beginning as young people who are too young and had missed his initial, you know, rise to stardom. 
and that he occupied a different space in American pop culture fascination by the time they actually encountered him. And yet they still saw something really moving to them in his performance, in his voice, in what he meant to people on a grander scale. And I think it for them, it started as them just saying to people, yeah, we like Elvis. And then I think that the collection started with gifts from family members or friends saying, oh, here's a weird Elvis thing. Let's buy it for Linda and David. And then it was just, you know, they leaned into it. And we visited Graceland a bunch of times and listened to Elvis Presley recordings a lot in the house. So that's the best explanation that I can give. So I want to hear more about what it was like to grow up in a family that was fascinated with Elvis like this. Um, And what was it like to, you know, have a whole room in your home dedicated to him? I was never embarrassed by it. I just thought this is a weird thing. And it's funny and interesting to me. And um, I, I kind of liked showing showing it off to people. It wasn't the only musician, artist, cultural icon that they were fans of. So it wasn't just Elvis. It was just, he was just the one that had a shrine. So it was really just like growing up in a household where your parents are fans of something. For a lot of other families, I'm sure it's sports teams. You're given it as a, as a positive thing in your life, something to respect or something to be interested in. And then you you sort of develop your own relationship with it. And this story is just as much about your dad as it is about Elvis. So do you think that you could write a story about your dad without mentioning Elvis or are they kind of mutually exclusive? Yes, I've written a lot about my dad without mentioning Elvis. For this essay, this really came about when my mom gave me this tape. It's how the essay opens is my receiving this tape. And that's sort of where the meditation and the quest of the essay started. Before that, the Elvis fandom and the Elvis room is just an anecdote or is just a memory or just a strange thing about a family. And I think we all have those. They're just things about our lives. But then something will happen or some click of the lens will change and you realize that this might actually be something to put into writing, right? That that might be the form for it. And so when I received this cassette tape, I was suddenly faced with this predicament and it led me to all of these thoughts about the Elvis fandom and about my relationship to my memories of my dad and my perception of him as a kind of icon, right? So it was sort of that that object was the portal into investigating this story. And this thread of connection between your dad and Elvis that you continue to pull throughout the story, I'm curious how planned out this was. Was this something that you planned to do before you started writing, or did it just kind of come up naturally? I think that they were so, the two figures are so tightly bound inside this one object because it's a recording of my young dad singing in the persona of Elvis at the Graceland tourist recording studio across the street from Graceland. As I started looking into how can I listen to this tape again, what risks am I taking? 
why am I having all of these feelings about it? You know, what are the consequences here? What what is it actually meaning for me more than this physical object? And so then I started sort of writing out in a bunch of directions. And like you're saying, the threads and parallels between my perception of my dad as this kind of iconic figure and Elvis Presley as this American icon who is the receptacle for sort of global projections and paranoia and all kinds of stuff. Um, Those things were occurring on the page more so than me ever drawing a one-to-one comparison in my own memory before I started writing about dad and Elvis. Um, But of course, they're all mixed up together. I wanted to let the juxtapositions of the different things I was thinking about, the different ways I was conceiving of both my dad and Elvis and fandom and analog tape and memory all just kind of sit within the same space as opposed to making a one-to-one comparison. You know, what do they have to say to each other if they're all existing in the space of this essay? So another connection that you included in this story is the connection to the Orpheus and Eurydice myth. So tell me about how you ended up making this connection. With the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, (laughs) I did not come up with it on my own. It, It arose from my research about disintegrating, decaying analog tape. So I found this technical article written by an ethnomusicologist about the world's archive of analog tape decaying and archivists not being able to digitize this material fast enough, right? And he used the metaphor of the Orpheus myth. And I thought, wow, that's pretty good. And it's not like that the Orpheus myth hasn't been used a million times, but as I thought about it, the resonances with my situation, particularly with my dad and that memory and that loss, I thought was resonating in a way that I hadn't quite heard it applied before. And so it it sort of naturally mixed in with the threads that I was writing about. And this essay in general, it feels like something that must have been pretty heavy emotionally. So I'm curious to hear what it's like to go about writing a piece like this. Yeah, it is very personal. It's very vulnerable. The process of writing this kind of memoir is a really deep dive into understanding the very tangled feelings that I'm even carrying around, right, that I might not be aware of all the time and that are revealed through this writing process, through pushing further into, what's the deal with this tape, right? It takes a long time for me. I started writing this essay in 2018, and then it's just come out in 2022. It took that time of working on it, putting versions of it away, coming back to it. And that process and just time um, changes your relationship, not only to the work, but to your own memories of the experience. And I think for me, a lot of times I can't see if the piece of writing is working well enough until I'm seeing it as a crafted narrative and I have enough distance from it. I need some time and space from from the actual emotional experience. So in this essay, you quote Grail Marcus saying, a dead person is vulnerable in ways a living person is not. And you write, when your dad is an alcoholic or addicted or depressed or dead or all of the above, that becomes the whole story. So do you see this essay as an attempt to tell a different story about your dad? 
Yeah, I love that quote by Grail Marcus, who's an amazing music critic. I think I was really struck by the idea of lives being determined and labeled by how they ended and that sort of casting back over the whole of a person's experience and and really flattening it. And I was thinking about that a lot in terms of thinking about Elvis, who is more symbol than human being in most of our imaginations, and hoping that I could write about my own father and maybe even Elvis in a way that that got a more nuanced experience, complicated and imperfect and not one thing or another, but all things. And so I was trying to to write about something in a way that that I couldn't even wrap up neatly. The point ultimately was not that I had the right story, but that I could never access the whole story and that there was something alive about that in a way that was ultimately more meaningful to me. And this quest that you find yourself on to figure out how to preserve this tape of your dad singing kind of reads as a symbol of fear for you, a fear of losing him all over again. How did you decide to write it this way or did you even plan for it to read this way? I think that was just me documenting my actual emotional reaction to being confronted with the object because I didn't have that fear or knowledge of that fear until I was presented with the question of the tape and can I listen to it again? Will I destroy it? That was just me trying to write down my actual sort of narrative experience of what do I do with this object now, right? What is it? And what is it? Why is it freaking me out so badly? I'm glad that the fear is coming through. And can you talk a little bit about your editing process in general? Is there anything that you changed about this story during the editing process? And how did it feel to edit a story like this that is clearly very important to you personally? I tend to overwrite the first draft I sometimes think of as my kitchen sink draft, where I'm throwing every idea and association and memory or tangent into it so that I have some documentation of it and I can always go back and craft and shape later. And so this piece has had slightly different endings, slightly different beginnings. It's included a lot more tangential research that ultimately needed to be pared back so that the central spine of it could be more clearly seen so that I wasn't sort of sending a reader off in a lot of different directions. And so that was part of the editing process. And then I did do some editing with the great Carolyn at NER. And the biggest change that we made together was opening with just the moment in scene where my mother gives me the tape. I had originally started this version of the essay with just a description of the Elvis room and sort of dropping the reader into this interesting, bizarre space. I was really pleased with the suggestion to start with the tape instead, because that is really the impetus and core of the piece. And it carries both dad and memory and fear of loss um, and Elvis all in one package. 
And editing really personal writing, it could seem like we would be more raw and more vulnerable and feeling like you're trying to edit this piece. What are you trying to, you know, take a scalpel to my heart? But I actually just really treasure editorial work because once you've sat with this writing that you've been really working so hard on and for so long, at a certain point, you can't see it anymore. And you're like, please, someone just tell me what this is. Does this mean anything to you? Or is this just me being super vulnerable? And so an editor, one of their first functions is to be like, no, I, I see what you're trying to do. And it means something to me. So let's help you shape it into the best version that it can possibly be. So I love editors. I love them. Thank you, editors. So in a way, I think that by writing this piece, you're memorializing your dad in a similar way to how Elvis is kept alive by his fans. Can you speak to that? I write a lot about my dad and it is a kind of memorialization, but it's also, I think sometimes we think of memorials as monolithic or as, you know, the glamour shot, uh, cleaned up version of a life, you know, what gets included in the obituary list of greatest accomplishments. And I'm interested in a kind of memorializing that gets at the complication and full scope and nuance and aliveness of a person. And so that is what I hope to do. And I have to rely on my own perspective as a daughter and imperfect memory and imperfect conversations with other people. And so I am trying to do that. And that also is what I'm interested in as a music critic. I'm interested, I'm interested in musicians as icons and as like symbols of zeitgeist and totally non-human parts of, of these performers. And then I am also interested in how human beings can make art that can be so transcendent and become figures of art themselves. So how does it feel to have written about your dad like this? And how does it feel for it to be published? It feels really good. I'm really, I'm really proud of this essay. And I'm really glad that it found a home in such a really incredible journal and one that I've admired for a really long time. And I think I was as honest as I could be, as honest and, and tender and coming from a place of, of love, by which I mean really deep attention as possible. And um, that's what I try to do when writing memoir and when writing about real people in my life. I mean, none of us acted perfectly, but, but I try to, to write from a, a place of understanding. So I just have one final question, and that is, do you still have this tape of your dad singing? I do have the tape. And spoiler, I have the, the CD that it was transferred onto. It did successfully get transferred onto a CD, so it's a little bit safer. But I will be perfectly honest, I have only listened to it a couple of times because the experience of listening to it and hearing it for the first time, it was so powerful to me that it really imprinted in my memory and I can sort of hear it without listening to it. It was sort of, it was so intense that it's nice to know that it's safe, but I think it'll be a long time before I feel the need to listen to it again.
was Katie Moulton, author of The Elvis Room. You can find her story and others in NER Volume 43.3, available for purchase on our website at www.nereview.com. This episode of NER Out Loud was written, edited, and produced by Becca Clark. The NER Out Loud podcast is produced by the New England Review in association with Middlebury College. Our original theme music is by Thomas Wentworth, and all other music was provided by Sound of Picture. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast online on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. And remember to subscribe to the New England Review so you don't miss our latest issues. From NER Out Loud, I'm Becca Clark. Thank you for listening.